Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Juliet Shore, the author of After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. When the sharing economy launched a decade ago, proponents claimed that it would transform the experience of work, giving earners flexibility, autonomy, and a decent income. It was touted as a cure for social isolation and rampant ecological degradation. But this novel form of work soon sprouted a dark side, exploited Uber drivers, neighborhoods ruined by Airbnb, racial discrimination, and rising carbon emissions. Several of the most prominent platforms are now faced with existential crises as they prioritize growth over fairness and long-term viability. Nevertheless, the basic model, a peer-to-peer structure augmented by digital tech, holds the potential to meet its original promises. Based on nearly a decade of pioneering research, After the Gig dives into what went wrong with this contemporary reimagining of labor. The book examines multiple types of data from 13 cases to identify the unique features and potential of sharing platforms that that prior research has failed to pinpoint. Juliet B. Shore presents a compelling argument that we can engineer a reboot. Through regulatory reforms and cooperative platforms owned and controlled by users, an equitable and truly shared economy is still possible. After the Gig is a Management and Workplace Culture Book of the Year, 2020 Porchlight Business Book Award winner, and a Publishers Weekly Fall 2020 Big Indie Book. Juliet B. Shore is an American economist and sociology professor at Boston College. She has studied trends in working time consumerism, the relationship between work and family, women's issues and economic inequality, and concerns about climate change and the environment. She is a New York Times bestselling author of The Overworked American, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure, and The Overspent American, Why We Want What We Don't Need, and is the chair of the board of directors of the Better Future Project. Juliet Shore, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about this project. In a lot of ways, uh, this work feels like a continuation of your work in The Overworked American, which is uh, the first book that I read by you. Uh, so before we dive into the substance of this most recent work, I wonder if you could share with our listeners what got you interested in, to borrow the phrase from your introduction, the problem of work. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I wrote The Overworked American, The Overspent American. I wrote a book called Born to Buy on Marketing to Children. And all of those books were about a problem and they had a one chapter uh, ending uh, sort of about solutions. And nobody who read those books was typically very convinced by the solutions and nor was I in a certain sense. So um, at the at the depths of the global financial crisis, uh, a time when I was worrying about economic issues and labor and the and climate change and the fact that the government was doing nothing, this was still in the George W. Bush era, um, I started writing a book which came to be called Plenitude, the New Economics of True Wealth. And it was sort of a vision, it was all about what we could do rather than, you know, one little chapter. And it was, um, it did lean very heavily on themes from overworked and overspent. Uh, It was directed to households, things that individuals could do in a world in which the government was failing us and the government wasn't taking action. So I just want to say that. So it was very individual 
based. Um, and a big part of the theme was sort of cut back on hours of work, reduce your need for spending, um, create new ways of earning money and uh, getting goods cheaply and get involved in community economies. And, and um, so that was kind of the, the theme of it. And as I was doing the work for that book, which came out in 2010, I learned about these new uh, platforms that were getting started like Airbnb and Uber and many other sharing initiatives, um, maker spaces and food swaps and clothing swaps and lots of ways to, to get goods cheaply, but also ways to earn money. And so I got interested in them because I thought, ah, oh, possibly the core of a new kind of economy that would allow people to de-link from highly stressful, long hours, destructive corporate jobs. So that's the that was the evolution. And that led me to start studying the sharing economy. Um, and I started looking at this with that book and then got the first funding for it in 2011. Um, and was one of the very first people to study these platforms in the U.S. Um, and I started. We I started with a group of graduate students. We started looking at the the nonprofits, the food swaps, and the time banks, and so forth. But then these for profits started um, really growing very rapidly, and we added those in. And so we looked across that wide range of all that innovation that that started at that time. So right at the beginning, you indicate that after the gig was very much a collaborative project, as you as you just mentioned. Um, I wonder if you would like to talk a little bit about your team and, and some of the processes that went into creating this work. Yeah, it was a really wonderful, wonderful experience. So I had funding from the MacArthur Foundation and used it to fund graduate students in sociology. And I teach in a sociology department. So some of these were my students that I was already working with. Uh, sometimes would pull in others. And over the years of this project, which stretched, we had funding for seven years, and then we continued a little bit longer. Um, I think we had about eight people. Most of the time, the team would have been about six. And so the grad students each picked a case that they were interested, typically would pick a case that they were interested in, um, and they would do primary data collection, whether it was we had ethnographic uh, data collection where they would go if it was a, a place that had a space, like a maker space, or uh, one grad student did a food swap, which met periodically uh, time banks where we could just um, uh, sign up to do tasks or to receive services. Um, and, and we did interviews and then we also began data scraping. So we had a wide range of methods and we worked together as a team and we did, uh, it was a nice mix of the students and I would write papers, just the two of us say on individual cases, but then we also developed a number of cross case studies. So we would pick a theme and we would, uh, we would all contribute to analyzing the data from multiple cases um, to sort of 
you know, make a broader argument and so forth. Um, and so the the book relies on, uh, in part, on some of the papers that we wrote as a team. And it's also, you know, there's other, other work in there too. But um, I think we all learned a lot and uh, we just really enjoyed working with each other and got a lot out of it. It was a very cohesive team, which was nice. That sounds great. Uh, so we should take some care to define some of the terms. Um, what do we mean by gig work and what do you describe as the sharing economy? Okay, so gig work typically, I mean, it, it actually comes from sort of the music and arts and culture world of musicians who would do gigs. Um, so it, it has come to mean uh, people doing sort of um, either you know, one-offs for in, in, for individual clients or customers. Um, uh, work that is sort of freelance is often thought of as gig work, independent contractors and so forth. Um, now, not all independent contractors are gig workers. So for example, you might be a plumber. You're not, wouldn't typically be thought of as a gig worker. But um, the kind of gig work that this book is concerned with, we could also call app-based gig work or algorithmic gig work, because we're not looking at all forms of gig work. It's platforms, people who are getting work through these apps, platforms, whether it's ride hail, food delivery, et cetera. And we focused on in-person services. There's a whole other world of online work which is often called click work or digital labor or you know working for amazon mechanical turk or upwork or some of these fully online and that's often called gig work but i think a little bit less frequently than the in-person services um now the sharing economy is a complicated term and we do have one paper where we go into a lot of the terminology the original terms that were used for this, uh, for Airbnb and ride, uh, ride hail and so forth. I think the, the first word that people used was the collaborative economy. And that was um, coined by a consultant, management consultant. Um, pretty quickly, it segued to this term of sharing economy. So by about 2012, that was the terminology that was used. And at that time, the sector, if we call it a sector, it comp was comprised of both these bigger for-profit platforms, Airbnb, Lyft, uh, and many others at that time, and these nonprofits. So they all considered themselves sharing entities. With one exception, Uber. Uber was never part of this because <laughs> it's always been a pretty right-wing it's not a sharing uh, company. It's it's a it's a predatory company. But anyway, okay. so it, it was it was never part of it. But that term got um, pretty quickly, I would say, also became delegitimized because the the nonprofits were sort of struggling. Um, they weren't really scaling, and we have a chapter in the book on this. These four profits are rocketing, uh, Airbnb, ride hail, the eventually food delivery and so forth. 
And the more the sharing are types that were really about goods, you know, people like sharing um, their cameras or their lawnmowers and those all failed really fast. Um, so there was a pushback against this terminology um, and it, it became really discredited pretty quickly, I would say. Um, and other terms uh, came to be more common, like the platform economy or, or people started differentiating uh, among different types of services rather than lump them all together under one term. So in Europe, they use sharing economy still a little more than here because that the nonprofit part of it actually was much stronger and continues to be much stronger. But here in the U.S., I, I don't think people really even use that term much anymore. Hmm. Disappointed to know that lawnmowers didn't take off. That was always a, an idea that was in the back of my head when I owned one. Um, so you note in the introduction that there have been a number of books that explore some of the same terrain uh, that you write about in After the Gig. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the literature that existed prior to this and, and how this book differs from what's been written on the topic before. So you had a few, um, there were sort of two genres of books. One was, this is great, uh, Digital Revolution. Um, the, there was a book, I think, called The Sharing Economy by Arun Sundararajan, who's an economist at NYU. The end of employment, you know, so this thing is going to take over. We're all going to be our own bosses. It's going to be really great. Uh, this technology is amazing and stay tuned for the world being completely made over. So there's that genre. And, you know, th th his may be the most extreme in that, but a lot of management uh, literature about the digital technology and the way it will remake various realms, including um, the realm of work, um, and then you have, in a way, the the uh, polar op, you know, the the reverse side of that with the mirror image, which is they're both agreeing that this thing is going to take over everything. It's going to completely revolutionize everything, but it's horrible. Uh, it, you know, it's, Uber is the most predatory company on the face of the earth, and and the workers are being degraded and hyper exploited and and all of that. And so you have. Um, and, and there's a there's a really nice juxtaposition of two books, one by the the woman I met or I didn't give you her name, but woman I mentioned who coined the term collaborative economy, who had a book called uh, What's Mine is Yours. Rachel Botsman was her name, an Australian consultant, management consultant. And then Tom Slee, who's a North American uh, social critic, wrote um his answer to that, which is what's yours is mine, um, which is like, oh, I'm just taking. So um, Slee wrote about Airbnb and the, the bad impacts of Airbnb, but then you had, you know, Gigged, um, which is by a journalist, Sarah Kessler, and just, you know, a lot of these, uh, what I now call the Uberization narrative, which is that it's taking over the world and everything's bad as a result of it, or the positive one, it's taking over the world and everything's good. So I think what's different about 
our book, which is, first of all, it's not a, I mean, it has a point of view, but it's, it's really rooted in, let's try and understand what's going on. So if there's a, we, we really try to sort of center the anal, an analytic understanding of what really is new here and what isn't new here and what's distinctive about this sector, because a number of these, um, a number of these accounts, I think, miss what's distinctive. Some think there's nothing distinctive. So there's a what we call the precarity narrative, uh, which is like, oh, this is just increasing precarity. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. And it's all about the way employers are treating labor. So it's about the fact that they're not employees and they don't have rights and all the risks are, are put on to them. It's not really about the technology. And then there's another group, which is for whom it's really all about the algorithm and, oh, the algorithm is controlling people and it's the boss, the algorithm is the boss. And that really harkens back to uh, earlier, you know, work that has shown what we call technical control or technological control being, you know, in the same way that the assembly line worker is controlled by the assembly line, the algorithmic worker is controlled by the algorithm. So neither of those two things is all that new. Um, and, and so um, we really focused on the, what we think is the sort of really novel thing about, yes, the, the technology is novel, but the, this work gives, it, it shifts risks, but it also gives the workers the ability to control their schedules in a way that almost no other jobs do, um, which is that they come on and off when they want. They work as many or as a few hours as they want. Now, part of why I focused on this is just, you know, my own history of studying work time. And a lot of the, the critics of the platform economy sort of poo-pooed this idea of schedule control um, on the grounds that, oh, you don't really have it. You have to work when the, when the demand is there and so forth, which is, th that's true for some workers. But one of the things we find when we talk to workers is how important that schedule control is to them and how important not having a boss is. A lot of the critics sort of really downplayed that. Um, but we found for the, for the, earners, it's really essential. It might be because they have other commitments. It might be because they're disabled and they can only work some days. It might be because they're fitting this around another job. And so that's a really um, key uh, thing about this workforce is how heterogeneous it is, because you have the full-timers, you have the very casual, you have people in the middle. Um, so, and the fact that you can go from app to app, and we find lots of people do that. They, they'll they be on one app and then they'll switch to the other. And it wouldn't necessarily, these days, it's not just Uber or, and Lyft. They're also on food delivery or Instacart, or, you know, they, they, they have that ability to go back and forth across, it's called multi-homing, like across different apps. So um, this is probably a way longer answer than you wanted. Um, so we really tried to focus on that and what made sort of what, how you could, and, and I guess the, that that analysis led us to the somewhat, you know, kind of different point of view than a lot of the literature had, which was to say, 
you've got very different kinds of workers on these platforms and they have very different kinds of experiences. And so if you're a full-time worker trying to depend on one of these things for your life, all your income, it's very difficult. If you're a supplementary, what we call a supplementary worker, where you have a full-time job with benefits and you're driving in, in your spare time, it might be reducing your precarity because you're using it to pay off debt or uh, build up some savings or so. So it, it also sort of explains why you have these two very schizophrenic kind of positions, you know, a kind of schizophrenic literature of like, it's great, it's horrible. Well, it depends. Yeah. And I want to say just as, as an aside that that was something I really appreciated about the book. Um, I came to it thinking that gig work was fairly exploitative. And then reading, you know, reading the pages of your book and finding out that in a lot of ways, it just really works for some people. That that yeah. it wasn't all about uh, just just about exploitation. Yeah. And it sort of depends, like if you think, well, you know, Uber, as I do, Uber should be following the law. Uber actually should be employing these people as full time workers because they fit the criteria for full-time workers. So Uber is an exploitative company and Lyft and, you know, a number of the others. So I, I, I'm really in that camp and yet, and, and I could say, and really we should take this opportunity to create good full-time jobs for people who need them and so forth. And yet I can also see that it created another kind of opportunity for people who also needed it for, you know, maybe not as much as the, the people who are so fully dependent, but Lots of people are struggling in this in this economy. And and so it, it's a lot of it sort of depends on like what's the perspective that you're looking at it from um, from an ideal world, from the world that we have. I mean, one thing I, I felt really strongly after reading a transcript of someone um, in my I have another project after this one that's doing, you know, studying the same kind of general stuff. And it was someone who just, you know, was very happy about the work and had no complaints and so on and so forth. And I remember reading this and thinking um, very low expectations. Um, and there's a wonderful book that's just come out by um, Princeton University Press. Katie Wells is the lead author. And uh, that's in the title. And it, it's sort of part of how you end up with an Uber is, uh, or a lift is you have low expectations oh. of of what you can of you know what we should be able to get now so i think a lot of people have low expectations and that's part of why they think well these platforms are great i'm happy um so in the first chapter of the book you it concludes by describing an event in san francisco um i was wondering if you might read from the book uh this is the last paragraph on page 37 sure Tell me when to stop. Sure. Uh, the, the section that this is in is called Beyond Capitalism? While the usual talking points of the idealist discourse were very much in evidence, the conversation went further. I was talking about a, a, a conference that I attended on the sharing economy. Douglas Atkin of Airbnb told me the plan was that sharing would, quote, replace capitalism. Even venture capitalists joined the system bashing. An early prolific investor in the sector, Shervan Pishavar, 
told a personal story about visiting an Irish village where a lot of sharing was happening. This was leading people to, quote, revert to where we came from, he said, thousands of years ago, and led him to an epiphany. The way the world has been structured is with injustice in the system. It's time to, quote, gain control and give it back to people. Venture capitalist Brad Burnham talked about how the fortunes being made by platform founders would be eroded and predicted, predicted that a true sharing economy wouldn't need financiers. This echoed language I'd heard from other sharing economy founders, such as Charlie Wang, who started Josephine, a meal preparation platform that specialized in helping immigrant women cooks. He described his team as, quote, post-capitalists whose aim was to move from the ultra-commodified food system to a human relationship-oriented one. Their for-profit status, he explains, was merely, quote, strategic. It was not hard to get caught up in the enthusiasm. Here we were in the heart of San Francisco, revisiting the very same issues that had animated the counterculture decades earlier. We were all well-meaning pioneers building a truly human, flat, empowering alternative to the disaster that is global capitalism. So I'm tempted to ask, what happened? <laughs> well, Josephine got but went bankrupt, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Well, the there are the one story is um sort of blames the VCs, and it's that all of these for profits took this money and then uh, had to become, you know, more predatory in order to survive. That that the VCs put pressure on them, and that was the plan all along. That the early days of like good wages and good treatment of workers and so forth was never going to last. It was just a way to attract people to the platforms and to build market share. And of course, there's definitely truth in that, but. I think that there's something else which in, is, is less obvious and which I don't think has been recognized in the way um, people have understood what happened, why the sharing economy went bad, which is that the sectors, a lot of the sectors where things went so bad were sectors where the economics never made sense. And the biggest examples of this are ride hail and food delivery. These are very, very low margin businesses. This technology is expensive and the companies, you know, Uber has a lot of overhead with expensive economists and this and that and, and so forth. And so they, they never had a business model that made sense because to grow, they had to subsidize these services by a lot. And when they, if they wanted to move to a world in which they were no longer subsidizing them, but actually making a profit, the market was going to have to shrink a lot because they're going to have to raise the prices. Uber and Lyft subsidized rides 40% for a decade. And, you know, eventually the prices went up and now they're comparable with taxi and so forth. And Uber's still losing tons of money and Lyft is still losing tons of money because they're, you know, they promise network economies, which really don't exist very much in these small local in-person services. They promised everything was going to be automated, which I never made any sense to me. Number one, the time frame was way off. But number two, 
that would mean the company would have to buy all that expensive technology. Whereas in the current world, the the drivers own the cars and they they uh, pay for all that and you know lose money on it. So it's I think it was almost inevitable in some of these cases because there never was a coherent economic or if you want to call it business plan. So it's not just greedy VCs. It's like the weakness of the concept from the very beginning. And, you know, people don't like the fact that there's there are barriers to entries in, in taxi. And that's one of the things that Uber, you know, relied on to, to grow was to destroy taxi, which had all that bad press and, you know, which the Koch brothers were, they, they followed the Koch brothers strategy of trying to destroy taxi because they didn't like any regulated businesses. But taxi was regulated because an unregulated industry just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and the reason is just so everyone understands when you have what, uh, what I refer to as a generalized skill, like driving something almost anyone can do, you can't have decent wages there uh, in, in periods when the labor market, you know, when people have trouble earning a living because so many people can just flood into it. So you need to have some barriers. So um, the the failure of the basic concept number at, at the scale that they were thinking of. Number two, you can see where it does work in something like Airbnb. Now Airbnb has a lot of a, a lot of negative about it, but for a long time, almost all the negative aspects of Airbnb were for the non-users. They were for the people in the neighborhoods, the people who were getting priced out of housing because so much housing was going to Airbnb and so forth. But if you ask hosts and guests, they were pretty happy. The platform took a, a reasonable amount, much less than the platform took in ride hail or food delivery. Um, and, you know, they truly did. They provided a service. They provided a platform where people, hosts and guests could get together. Now, there, you know, we can, there, there's plenty to, to criticize Airbnb about, but it's a very different model. And it's, they got profitable pretty fast. Um, very different model with a different set of problems than, than ride hail, food delivery, et cetera, where it's exploited, exploiting workers rather than taking it, exploiting outsiders, if you want to think of it, and, and sort of undermining, the, creating a lot of social costs that so, they weren't paying for. So the second chapter, and we sort of touched on this, but I want to dig in a little deeper. The second chapter focuses on what it's like to actually work in the sharing economy. And it does it in, the, in that very subtle, nuanced way that we've that we've already discussed a little bit. There's no singular experience of working in the gig economy. And you share stories of people on different platforms and who work for different reasons. But if you can answer this question, what in general brought people to work on platforms and, and what was most likely to influence their experience of that work that they did? So since we started studying this right at the beginning, it was still the aftermath of the Great Recession, the global financial crisis. We and we were in Boston, and our our work is was mostly local. So for a lot of people, it was the experience of graduating from college into the recession and un, their inability to get a job. 
Um, the, in the early days, the people on these platforms were very highly educated. They tended to be middle class and they tended to be white. Now, that's something that has changed over time. Um, it does vary across the platforms, too. Um, but that was a big, a big part of it. Um, so it was that lack of opportunity in the conventional labor market. And, and this is a really important point, maybe more relevant to researchers than the you know, average listener today. But it's really important to, to contextualize or think about this sector in the context of what's around it. So a lot of the research is sort of focusing on, oh, it's new, it's different, it's novel, thinking of it as an island and just uh, only thinking about its own dynamics and just decontextualizing it. And a, a big part of, you know, I think partly because I came at it as someone, you know, who began their career as a labor economist, I thought a lot about the connections between the, uh, the la larger labor market and this sector and seeing it as very permeable. So this is something that people turn to when they are uh, lacking opportunity in the conventional labor market, or they turn to it in the early days because it was offering very high wages for any for a given level of skill compared to the conventional labor market. And so, I mean, the wages of in ride hail, we did a lot of interviews on a platform called TaskRabbit, which is a kind of general errands and tasks, all any pretty much anything you post it there and and um it, it, you know it could be picking things up for people. It, they did a lot of uh IKEA furniture for assembly and IKEA in, in the end bought the platform and that's oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um the people were earning really high wages on this uh platform much more than you could earn at um you know, whether it's a fast food job or any other low wage job. And uh, I remember one um, really good interview in which the person contrasted this work, which I, uh, was on TaskRabbit, with working for a caterer, which they had done prior. And not only were the wages better, but a lot of low wage work, service work, has, has oppressive management like oppressive bosses and, you know, unpleasant working conditions. And here people control their own work and their time. And in the early days, we're getting really high wages. So that's another thing that brought them to it. Um, and a lot of students were also earning on some of these. And it's just so flexible, right? You can just, if you don't have any homework that night, you turn it on and go out for a couple of hours, do some food deliveries and, you know, you've made money for your weekend uh, entertainment. Uh, so the third chapter looks and we looks at the problem of inequality, uh, specifically racial inequality, but also inequality based on educational att attainment. So what does the problem of in inequality look like when it intersects with the sharing economy? So there are a number of different inequality problems in this sector. On the racial side, um, there it, it's it's so interesting. You've got it, this does vary by by platform. So with Airbnb, the prop Airbnb ha has a big has had a big racism problem, and I, I actually have a little bit in the book about how. Yeah, I went to Airbnb. I wanted to get their data. 
I, I had some contacts there. You know, I wanted to study this racial inequality because I was worried about it. And they came back. They were very open to collaborating, but they came back and said, we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole. And then they got outed by some researchers at Harvard Business School who scraped data and showed um, that there was guest uh, discrimination against hosts. And later, other work showed that there was host discrimination against guests. And, and my team did some work on this as well, uh, using scraped data, not the, what the company gave us. And there you have the issue that Airbnb has never been held to... Uh, fair accommodation laws, which make it illegal uh, for hotels or uh, short-term accommodations over a certain size to discriminate. Um, Uber's, so that's, the, and that's been a big problem. There's racial discrimination on both sides and also on other platforms like Airbnb. There was one we studied, which it came to be called Turo, which is like renting out your car instead of your a room it's your car i have a, a we did an interview we did interviews with consumers also with a black woman who like couldn't get a car to save her life one one uh, christmas she was in chicago and um just kept getting turned down cuz she was black uh the ride hail's fascinating because in ride hail you're up against already taxi which has been highly discriminatory in two ways. One, not picking up riders of color and number two, not going into neighborhoods uh, of color. And so the ride hail app is better than taxi was at that uh, uh, and, and probably, you know, maybe still is um, because it, it, it sort of makes it harder to discriminate, but really great work done by researchers shows it's not free of discrimination. So you do have uh, discrimination against uh, passengers of color and against neighborhoods, um, but at a lesser level. Um, and Uber's done, done tried to do a lot of outreach to black communities, especially to try and get them on its side with this idea that they're the anti-racist. Of course, they have a now at this point have a very, very strong um, uh, workforce of of color, uh, black and brown workforce who they exploit terribly. So it's it's very cynical on their part. Um, also, research on TaskRabbit showing um, both by neighborhoods and who gets picked. And we have research showing that if you're uh, a non-white on Airbnb, you're less likely to get reviews and you'll get lower ratings. And, you know, so there's there's racial uh, discrimination and bias in the whole rating system, which is a customer-driven rating system. So lots of ways in which um, racism appears on these different platforms, and it's all a little bit specific to the platforms. Um, but that other question that you raised, which was about educational opportunity, uh, educational uh, inequality, um, one of the arguments I make in the book is that, and this is what we saw in the qualitative data, in the early days, what was happening was highly educated middle-class people were moving into sectors that traditionally had been uh, 
the the realm of people without college degrees and also less white, less middle class. So whether it's taxi to ride hail, where you get a, a boost in uh, whiteness and educational attainment in those early days, or these errand sites, or Airbnb, which if people are using Airbnbs instead of hotels, the uh, the the cleaning staff in hotels are typically women of color. Uh, so it's a sort of substitution effect. And what I argued is that it's uh, people higher up in the income and educational distribution were taking work, taking away work that had been done historically by people with less educational and uh, it, uh, status. And this is something that typically happens in recessions uh, more generally. Um, to the extent that these platforms are expanding the size of these markets that attenuate some of that. But I think there was also that substitution of X, certainly in, in taxi in the early days. So in, in chapter five, you look at this, uh, I mean, the, the loosely centered on the idea of community sharing. Um, what were these platforms like and, and what was the experience of the people who used them? Yeah. So this, these were less platformized in some ways. So the time bank, we started a time bank where people trade services um, in which the ratio, the exchange ratio is always by time. So I spend an hour doing something for you, somebody, then I, I that earns me an hour that I can get of somebody else's time. And these are what we call multilateral service exchanges meaning if I get something from you, I don't have to give you something back. I can give it to somebody else. So it's a, you have a bank of the number of hours you've earned by what you've done, and then you spend them. That's, that was a website, uh, kind of a basic website, but um, we also studied a makerspace, a food swap, and we studied another case of people doing uh, online education in sort of community sharing contexts. Um, two big things I would say here. So with the food swap and the time bank, um, what we found was these are very egalitarian uh, setups. Everybody's, um, the exchange ratios are equivalent. It doesn't matter if you're an electrician or, a, you C know, somebody, a what? CPA. Yeah, like a very highly skilled uh, someone who earns can earn a lot in the market, or somebody who's doing a you know just driving someone else somewhere something that doesn't earn that much in the market. Um, so two things were, I mean, people were drawn to start these sites and also to participate in them because they believe strongly in the ideologies that those egalitarian ideologies they saw them as solutions to problems of capitalism. And they really believed in them. But the way the sites were, the, the, the economies that were set up weren't really meeting people's needs or the, the people who needed these things weren't part of them. So people would participate in the time bank, but they didn't really need anything. So they just rack up hours doing stuff for other people. They treated it more like a charity or 
the food swap turned into like a very weird foodie snobbish kind of thing. And it failed because it really was. And it was supposed to be helping low income people to eat more healthfully. And there were no low income people who showed up at the food swap. The makerspace, the very successful makerspace, it also sort of developed a really kind of highly inegalitarian culture in which there were it was located in a in a neighborhood with lots of people of color and we never saw a black person in a year and a half there and there were a lot of latinos who lived around there and it was like very white um it, i i did some research on another another uh, site uh, the, the, this was this is very platformized it's a food sharing app if you have food that you don't want, uh, to, it, most of it's prepared food, you list it on the site and then anybody can come and get it. Um, restaurants and sandwich shops, bakeries, food, grocery stores, and individuals use it. And then people come and, and they take it. Some people take a lot and distribute it to people who need it and so forth. And we studied it during the uh uh, COVID lockdown, because there was a huge rise in insecurity during the COVID lockdown, zero evidence <laughs> that it got any food to the food insecure, even though it's here's free food for people and people, you know, in close proximity, desperately needed food. So there's also technological barriers, cultural barriers. Um, so these four profits just really didn't work. And so we have an analysis in the book about why, but it, you know, it, in some sense, it's if you lead with ideology and you don't have, you know, what we called in the book a value proposition. You don't, you're not providing value to the people, to the users. You'll fail, or you won't get the kind of users who you really want to serve, and that both of those things happened. Yeah. The the story about the food share thing was kind of cringe inducing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the book concludes, as promised in the title, with some ideas for how we might win back the sharing economy. Uh, what are your ideas for co-ops, commons and community sharing? Yeah. So I think with the community sharing, uh, the first thing is to get the the sort of the model right and not not be sort of have ideological blinders that keep you from sort of setting it up in ways that meet the needs of the people whose needs you're trying to serve. So that's the first point. And, um, you know, I have a little paper about this, which says, and it's probably in the book too, I don't remember now, but it's like, make sure the people, the people you want to be there in the end, make sure they're there at the beginning to help design the thing so that I mean that's just a basic principle about how to how to to work across class and race and and so forth um so but so I think there are ways to create community sharing nonprofits and so forth that really work for for people um and uh so that's and uh two other points one is um if you can get municipal governments involved, that's often really key to success. So we found, for example, that uh, looking at some of the, at the literature on time banks, the ones that were set up with, with government help and outreach to 
constituents and uh, residents uh, could work really very well, or that they're they have an institutional basis with which helps them, and that sort of mitigates some of the problem of the that sort of cultural high levels of cultural capital in the with the founders and the early adopters in these sectors that we saw that sort of were off putting to you know you know people who were not quite so highly educated and, and so on and so forth. And then of course we studied cooperatives in which the earners own the platforms and those are really fantastic. At the time the book was written, uh, there was really only one that we that was sort of sufficiently advanced and, and that we could study that we found in the US. It was actually it's a Canadian, but in North America, there are many more now. Um, but these are what are called platform cooperatives. And there's a, a new book coming out in a, in a month or two by Trevor Schultz, who's sort of the godfather of the platform cooperative movement or the father of it. Um, and the, the, this is a form that's really growing pretty rapidly. Um, I would say the other thing about the, the how to win it back. So there's that those community sharing and the co-ops and municipal involvement and sort of building up that sector. Um, but I also think we need to have regulation. Um, and in the uh, um, it, it, in some of these cases, we've seen some very successful regulation in others sort of less successful. I would say the most successful regulatory uh, case is New York City with Taxi and Limousine Commission, which regulates not just taxis, but also ride hail, Uber and Lyft. They have a minimum wage. They have, um, they have, you have to have a license. I mean, it, it's just a, you know, much, much better thing for the drivers. And it's worked out really well. And they, New York City Council just passed a minimum wage for food delivery, and it was uh, they it was immediately challenged in court by Uber and DoorDash, and um, so there's been an injunction against it, and we'll we'll see where that goes. But I, it, it could work there too, if the companies you know don't. Hopefully, they won't win in court, but they're trying. It's interesting that you mentioned the the role of mun municipal governments because as I was reading your book, I would sometimes take it to my local library, and they one of the local libraries I, I go to with my son sometimes has just started the ability to check out things like bicycles and power tools, and I was thinking you know, well, that makes perfect sense, right? Because I need a drill like maybe once a year. So, you know, let, let's, I'll just go to the library and check out a drill. Yeah. And I think that is a way that those good sharing sites could work a lot better. Americans are, <laughs> I did the first national random sample surveying of, uh, in the U.S. on the gig economy, or sharing economy. And uh, one of the questions we asked was, would you like to share more things like household items and so on and so forth? And only a third of Americans answered that affirmatively. But I it just and all those sites died like so fast. Um, but people do love their libraries and they trust the libraries. And I, I think that having that institutional yeah. uh, piece to it um, really can help. Yeah. Uh, so before I let you go today, uh, I know that you've been busy with a new project. 
Uh, so I wonder if you'd like to share with our listeners what you're currently working on. Yes, so it's a pretty exciting project. Um, and it's uh, sort of, I started it just after this book came out. It's on the four day week. Again, still the theme of shorter working hours, which has been so central to my life for many decades. Uh, we are, my team and I are studying companies who are giving their employees four day working weeks four eight-hour days, not a 410, so not a compressed work week, a work time reduction, a four 32-hour week, but with no reduction in pay. So 40 hours, or 32 hours for 40 hours pay. And these are companies all over the world, uh, almost. Um, actually, we have, do we have, we're not quite in Asia yet, but we have South, we have Africa, we have South America, North America, Europe, Australasia. Um, and we've had uh, hundreds of companies, thousands of employees, phenomenal results uh, showing great maintenance of productivity and performance from the company side. So they're happy, but also huge increases in well-being for the workers uh people love it and they're less stressed they report better physical and mental health they're less burned out less fatigued they sleep more they exercise more you know so all lots and lots of very positive impacts um yeah so and we are just about uh, starting uh, a new trial, a new, we call them pilots, six month pilots that companies or organizations can join. We have a lot of nonprofits too, uh, which will be starting in the fall in uh, the US. So, and, and actually other countries can join too, but that's a cohort primarily of US companies that will be starting and we'll have a, another Canadian cohort soon after that. So. Um, if you are anyone who has the slightest bit of interest in this, whether you have decision-making power in an organization or you would like to get your the people who have that decision-making power to think about this, um, you can go to our website at Four Day Week Global, and uh, there's both a like, are you interested, and how do you talk to your boss about a four day week? Could you say that the website again? Four Day Week Global. Four day week global. Okay, um, as I as I mentioned before, we started talking uh, or before we started recording. Um, I'm negotiating our um, contract with the university administration, and, and I suspect that work hours might pop into those discussions at some point. So, yes. I, I might have to log on. We've had a uh, I had a I had a university come to me uh, interested in this. They're not quite ready to to go forward, but I think we're going to start to see it at universities too. I would hope so. Uh, Juliet Shore, thank you. It's just been such an honor to talk to you today. Thank you. Really, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, once again, my guest today has been Juliet B. Shore, the author of After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back from the University of California Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network. <laughs>